Hi everybody, Wynn Claybaugh here and welcome to this issue of Masters and I'm sitting with this guy, Kevin Carroll, who I just have to tell you, I'm really good <laughs> at tracking down incredible mentors and storytellers and leaders and and I came across this guy, I can't even remember how, other than that I just scroll a lot to find people like Kevin. But man, when I started checking out his TED Talks and his qualifications, his work experience, I was just blown away. And so, of course, I get busy to track him down and, and he immediately responded. And so before I even tell you all who he is, what his bio is all about, let me just welcome Kevin Carroll. Kevin, thank you so much for being a part oh, of this Lynn, today. Thank you. I appreciate it. I, I, I can truly appreciate a dogged determination of someone to uh, find voices and people who tell stories and kindred spirits. So I was down to do this with you for sure. Well, you know what? You're exactly right. Uh, kindred spirits. I love that because Lord knows there are plenty of voices out there that can uh, rival us up and, and put us in the wrong frame of mind that perhaps do not serve us, conversations that absolutely do not matter and do not make a difference. And so when you find those kindred spirits and those voices who are the opposite of that, wow, it's just such a breath of fresh air. And I, I'm so grateful to you. So thank you. Absolutely. So I'm going to read this that came from your bio. So this is what it says. They chose their addiction over raising three sons. The pinnacle moment of his parents' neglect resulted in the three boys being rescued by a stranger, shuttled down to a bus station in Bowling Green, Virginia, placed on a bus alone ages eight, six, and three, and sent on a 200-plus mile one-way fare to their grandparents' house in Philadelphia. Without parents in his life, Kevin resorted to finding life lessons from many sources, businessmen and laborers, winos and alcoholics, drug dealers and users, sport coaches, war vets, school teachers, librarians, custodians, food service workers, other kids, moms and dads. After serving in the Air Force for 10 years and earning a college degree, Kevin became an athletic trainer at the high school and collegiate levels in Philadelphia. His expertise in sport performance was recognized by the 76ers organization and get this, led to earning a dream job as the head athletic trainer for the Philadelphia 76ers in 1995, being the third African-American athletic trainer in the history of the NBA. I mean, this goes on and on. Kevin joined Nike in 1997, uh, started his own company. He's the author of four highly successful books, which I know we're going to talk about. And then to wrap up his bio here, before we jump into this interview, Kevin addressed the United Nations as part of the UN Year of Sports for Development and Peace in 2005. Success Magazine named Kevin one of 19 seers changing the world. Oh my gosh, Kevin, <laughs> changing the world. Do you ever wake up in the morning and think, gosh, today I'm just going to change the world? Does that come up for you? No, that, that term or that thinking doesn't come up. But what does is just, you know, pay attention to your intention and the importance of having something that gets you out of bed in the morning and pursuing that and chasing that. And I think that's a big part of what I've been able to manifest on a regular basis with consistency. And I think that's a key part of it is, you know, you got to have something that gets you out of bed in the morning 
And if you don't, it's easy to stay in bed, right? And have no motivation and have no genuine inspiration to want to pursue something, to manifest a hope, a dream, and aspiration into reality. And so, yeah, I, I don't think about that lofty you know, effort, but I definitely uh, do grade myself at the end of each day to see if I've done something to make the world better and to make someone's life better at the end of each day. And that all adds up and you lift up your head after just pushing that stone up the hill day after day after day for years and years and you lift up your head and think, wow, okay, maybe I did change the world. Maybe I did change that person's life or saved that person's life or changed that person's perspective or, or had an influence in helping to cultivate a better culture for that company or that organization. And that's what you're doing. So congratulations. Yeah, the, the Sisyphus, yes, right? Sisyphus pushing the boulder up, right? Yeah. So I don't, I don't know if this is a word, Sisyphusian kind of life, but uh, yeah, so I've been, uh, been definitely... Uh, doing that, pushing that boulder up. And I think you stack little wins. That's what you do. Play on words. You love that, right? Little wins. Yeah, little wins. Yes. Little wins. So stacking little wins each day and they end up, you know, you and you've got this beautiful mosaic that you've created of all these wins and all these moments that really have affected people. And Miss Lane would always talk about getting that feedback at some point, kind of like when a teacher gets the offspring of a student that they had years before. And they come in and said, my mom or dad told me all about you. I'm getting those moments where people are reaching out to me. You won't remember me, but you came to my school. You spoke at my business. My mom brought this book home from one of your events. And now I'm doing this. And it's always been a source of inspiration, your words. Wow. And I think that's something that I've really been paused by and recognizing that, you know, my effort is not in vain. And that's what emboldens me to keep going. Wow. You know, you, you say that people come up to you and say, yeah, my mom bought your book and my mom told me about you. Now it's getting to the point where it's, uh, my grandma told me about, yeah. about you. Yes. So, you know, we keep doing this and you never know the impact that you're going to have. And sometimes you don't receive those validations or those accolades until 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later. It's like, okay, I, I did something right 50 years ago and I get to enjoy the benefits of that today. So, yeah, wow. Yeah, and that goes back to that idea of being present, right? Be where your feet are because those moments matter. There are no casual moments to me. I, I'm a firm believer there are no casual moments when I'm interacting with another person, with another human being because maybe that day they really needed to hear from me. And so your words matter. And so I never take that for granted when I'm on a stage, on in front of a classroom, on a call with someone, doing a, you know, ever virtual event, that there could be one individual there that day that really needed to hear from me. And so that's what I, my goal is, right, is to be present for that person. Wow. Wow. That mindfulness is, I think it's a good habit. Obviously, you've developed that good habit to say to yourself, this could be that conversation. This could be that person. This could be that moment. Maybe I don't see it. Maybe I won't see it or hear about it for another 10 or 20 or 30 years from now, but this could be it. Mm, yeah. And, and I think the other key is how do we endeavor to be less transactional and more transformational with each other? Wow. I think that's really the key, right? Is how do we try to really endeavor to be transformational with each other? And not to take things for granted because we don't know, right? And so I just really think that that's a 
a discipline I've created over all the years. I can thank my Nana Carol for uh, my, this is my great grandmother for the whole idea of being still that you mentioned mindfulness and it made me instantly think of her that she basically created a meditation practice for me when I was six You're kidding? because we couldn't go outside and play when until we sat still for five minutes by her side. That was the rule. You can't go outside, be still, five minutes. And I used to think she was so mean <laughs> to do that to me, right? When I even did the math and I figured out it was 300 seconds at one time I had the audacity to say to my Nana Carol, Nana Carol, that's 300 seconds. And she says, yes, and you just got 10 more. <laughs> so, so, so I was like, oh, right. But then I started to understand, you know, when I would settle down that I could actually see with my ears, if you will, None. right? Because I was present. And so you think about, she didn't use meditation or mindfulness, those words, but now I reflect back like, my gosh, I've got all those years of practice a really good mindfulness and meditation practice that allows me to have the discipline to show up the way I need to show up to be transformational with people. Wow. Okay. So, so just take us back because your, your story is incredible. So tell us that story starting from when you and your two siblings were placed on a bus alone as little kids. Well, I, you know, my parents, you know, dealt with their demons and, that impacted three little boys. And we moved a lot as kids because of their addiction. And so we slept in cars, their get high buddies' houses, porches. The only time that we actually felt like we had a roof over our head consistently is when my grandparents would have us from time to time. And so we moved a lot. And I just started to understand that this was just normal for us. And so I wanted to hold on to something that would make me feel safe. And so I actually grabbed a blanket one of the places that we were at and I just held on to this blanket and I had a very specific way. I slept with this blanket so that it would always come with me when my mom would wake us up in the middle of the night. Cause you know, by this point at, my dad had already been gone for three years. He left when I was three and we'd never see him again. And so my mom moved us a lot and she moved us in the middle of the day, took my brother and I out of school. My little brother was only three at the time. So my older brother was eight. I was six. My little brother was three. And told us to get in the car. We're moving again in the middle of the school day. And I remember my brother and I were really, really upset with my mom because school was a safe place. We got breakfast. We got lunch. We got attention. We had recess. We got to work on you know homework. All these things that I just found were just filled with joy and the things that I needed because I knew every time I went to school, there was consistency, which we didn't have as kids. And we're in the back of the car and she's driving away from Philadelphia. We saw the city limits basically disappear into the night. And when we finally came to a stop, my mom told us to sit down in this trailer. And she said she'd be right back. And five days had gone by and she hadn't returned. And my older brother's eight, I'm six, my little brother's three. And I was mad about it. And I told my older brother to do something about this. You need to do something because you're the oldest. And my older brother was just scared. He didn't know what to do. And so I took action. I basically said, well, I'm going to do something. And my older brother said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm telling on her. I'm going to find somebody and I'm telling on her. And my brother said, well, we're not supposed to leave the trail. I said, well, I'm breaking a promise. We should be in school. Wow. So we opened up the door and looked around and found another trailer and there was a stranger in there. And 
I remember my grandfather's phone number when. See, my grandparents made us memorize their phone number. So this is a back in the day moment, right? So because right. kids don't understand this stuff, right? Or memorizing phone numbers and stuff till you really like are hemmed up in a situation now, right? Where people go, oh my God, I don't know anybody's number, right? Because we don't learn numbers anymore. But I was taught my grandparents' phone number in case of an emergency. And here was this emergency and here was a stranger and I told her the phone number and she dialed the number. And when you'll appreciate this, I still remember that phone number. And so when she called my grandparents and handed me the phone, I explained the situation and my grandfather listened. And I remember he said, well, I can't come get you boys. It's too far. And he said, can I speak to the stranger? And I handed the phone to the stranger. There was a brief conversation. She hung the phone up. She said, I'm going to see if this works. Your grandfather asked me to take you boys down to the bus station and see if we can find the bus driver going back to Philadelphia. And hopefully he'll put you on a Greyhound bus and take you back to Philadelphia. Let's see. And this is the late 1960s. All this is happening. We find out we're in Bowling Green, Virginia. So three African-American boys are in the South in the late 1960s alone. Wow. Anything could have happened to us because these were really turbulent, tumultuous times in the United States. And we didn't realize we were in danger, but the stranger knew we were. And when she went to the bus station and found the bus driver who was white and explained our situation, the bus driver understood the situation. And so the bus driver said, yes, I never got the bus driver's name. I never got the stranger's name. And he put us on that bus and he took us back to Philadelphia. My grandparents were waiting and they paid the bus driver. Wow. So when you think about there's no means of communication The woman just says, yes, I'll get them there. My grandparents must have waited for hours at that bus station for us, just hoping we would show up. And we did. And they made a decision. My mom was not getting us back. They were going to raise us as best they could. And so at six years old, I was in a situation where my grandfather literally said, hey, listen, we're going to put a roof over your head and food on the table for you boys, but you're going to have to basically raise yourselves. So imagine hearing that at six years old. What do you do with that? And that's where I discovered the playground. But you didn't really necessarily raise yourself because you you do talk about the influence. Yes. I know you mentioned your grandmother quite a bit. Oh, yes. We didn't. You know, my grandfather was very pragmatic and very practical man, right? And he was loving and caring, but he was very practical. And, you know, he said, you know, they basically can't run behind us and can't be you know, going to our activities and all these other things. So that's where he was mentioning the idea of raising ourselves. So, cause they had already raised a family of three girls. My mom was one of their three daughters. And so I think what ended up happening was I was seeking out family and community. And the first place that I found it was at Preston Playground. That was the first place I found my community. And it was a group of boys who invited me to play ball with them on that first day that I ran up there to the playground, just wanting to kind of run out all that anger, run out all that worry, all that concern that was in me. I just needed to run. That's what I felt was the way for me to cope with it. And so I meet this group of boys at the playground that day. And it's so funny. I I got a nickname that day. I'm still known as that in my neighborhood at six years old. I got a nickname. My My nickname is Little Fast Kid, right? So I've been Little Fast in my neighborhood since I was six years old. And I also just got this amazing, unconditional welcoming. And I made a decision that I would dedicate my life to a ball 
on that day. And it was never for trophies or medals or first place. It was just for belonging. I saw the power of being a part of a team and how important that was for me and how that was like family for me. And so I threw myself headlong into sports and it was not about I'm going to be this or that or this or that. I just wanted to be a part of a team. And that was really important for me. And Preston Playground was my first place. And it was the energy center of the neighborhood. And that's where I met all those people that you mentioned that poured into me and raised me, right? From drug dealers to users, war veterans and workers, other kids' parents. Everybody cut through that playground because it was in the middle of our neighborhood. So people knew our story. And so they supported us as best they could. I don't know why they chose to watch over us because they didn't have to. But they did. And so I think that was also something magical about our neighborhood. My gosh, I'm sitting here writing so many questions here when you but I, I do want to talk about this because I love when I read that and I use that as part of my bio introducing you here today, where you said that your sources were winos and alcoholics, drug dealers and users, sport coaches. What I didn't realize was you said that that playground was in the middle of the community. So all these different people, walks of life are crisscrossing through this yes. playground and, and maybe that's how they became your mentors or your teachers. Can you talk about that community? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Preston Playground, that place, I mean, it just makes my heart smile when I think about it. And it, listen, it wasn't some some perfect nirvana, right? It was dysfunctional and outrageous sometimes and ridiculous and just warm and welcoming. It had just every nuance you could possibly imagine. But for me, it was just this wonderful, just collision of all of this community. And I always felt welcome there from that day. And so people would notice, you know, all the kids. And I guess I had a kind of energy or something that really drew people to me, especially the older people there. And they found out our story. They knew our story. Everybody in the neighborhood kind of talked about everybody because it was a small little community on the main line of Philadelphia. So to paint a picture, it was literally a square block across the tracks from the estates and very well-to-do community. So almost like you couldn't, you know, you couldn't paint it a perfect kind of like they were living on the other side of the tracks kind of a situation, but that's where we were. In fact, I found out later as I got older that the school district would actually look at your address and zip code and determine your destiny. What, what do you mean by that? Explain that more. So they would actually look at your zip code and determine what you would be. Oh, so you're on that side of the tracks. Oh, so you're going to be a domestic because that's your destiny. That's what everybody in your neighborhood is. And until you actually advocate for or, cha or change our mind in some way, we're going to steer you education-wise to a trade. And so that's the way it worked in our neighborhood. So most of the men that I looked up to were laborers of some sort, and many of the women were domestics. That's the way it worked. Right. And so they, unless you were in some way a contrarian, right, or an outlier, and you bucked the system, and you advocated for yourself, your lot in life was already prepared and planned for you based on the zip code where you came from. 19010. I still remember my zip code right from that area. And so, yeah. And so I didn't 
understand that until I got older. And it was basically someone explained that to me and why I had to advocate for college prep. Because otherwise, they were going to put me in vocational tech, which is not a bad thing. But if you have the ability to go to college, right, or higher education that way, why shouldn't you? And so that was what was really unique about that area was that it was when I was growing up, one third of the nation's wealth was actually on the main line of Philadelphia. Wow. So, yeah, so it was a very wealthy. I went to school, my graduating class had nearly 800 people, and maybe the whole school had 50 people of color out of 2,500 students. So we knew there were other things outside of our neighborhood, but you also had the pressure of your neighborhood. Don't get outside your status, right? Right. Right? Don't think that you're better than, right? And so there was always a bit of that tension too about trying to stretch beyond what was already set up for you. And so I think that was always part of the tension. And that's why Miss Lane, you know, and I know you're going to ask me about her, but that's why she was so important because she bucked the system and she found a way to be an outlier. And so Miss Lane was probably one of the key people in putting that thought in my head that there was more. And yes, you could settle or you could stretch and that was your choice. And so, yeah, so I think absolutely exposure is a key thing and visibility too, and seeing possibilities when maybe other people don't see them. Wow. So, so you say that these boys at the Preston community playground, they embraced you and then it became about a ball. I, I want you to explain that. It was easy when I watched your Ted talk because you make it very visual and you have photos of different balls from different communities and different countries. And, and why does that ball have such significance in that community for bringing people together and the, the lengths that people will go or the sacrifices that they will make in order to have that play, so to speak, in their community? I think you know where I'm going with this. I just, I just love that story, especially for somebody like me who has never really touched a ball or played with a ball. I think my dad, <laughs> you know, maybe two little league things and realized this ain't going to go anywhere. So, <laughs> yeah, but you know, what's so funny about that too, is the irony of people thinking that simply playing a sport is about becoming a professional athlete. It's not actually, it's so much bigger than that, right? It's all those lessons that you're learning from participating in something like that. And so many parents take their kids away from that without realizing that maybe my child hasn't learned all the great lessons they could have learned from it yet. And, you know, the notion of belonging, connection, community, how to be unselfish, how to be a member of a team, how to support each other, the idea of encouraging someone, how to take direction, I just think there's so much more to it than just the win and the loss or aspiration to become a professional athlete. That's why there is a big push to get kids moving again and finding opportunity for young people to move, but also to enjoy it, right? And not to have the pressure of, well, if you don't, you know, you don't win silver, you lose gold kind of thing, right? And so, yeah, and so no, it doesn't have to be that. And so, you know, the ball represents, you know, hope 
and connection and community and belonging to me. It was never about a trophy or a medal or first place. It was this group of boys who said, do you want to play with us, kid? We play basketball, football, wiffle ball, soccer. We play all kinds of games up here at the playground. If you want, you can join us. It was as simple as that. It was not about, are you good? Are you bad? No one asked any of that. Wow. That's what's really magical about you know, the ball for me. It's, it was an amazing convening tool. And so I think that, and so I think that's the other thing that's so beautiful and magical about, you know, sports and play and movement, whatever it might be, it doesn't have to be sport or play, but what moves you, right? What inspires you to get out of bed in the morning could be art, could be dance, could be music, but you're also, when you're doing art, right? Other kids are doing that with you. Dance, right? You're part of a dance team. Oh, music, maybe you're part of an orchestra or a band. Those are teams to me. Right. Those are communities to me, right? We all have a shared interest in something. That's really what it's about is finding a shared interest in something. That's what we're all yearning to find that spark. If we find that spark when then we've got a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Wow. And so the ball was that for me, it was the spark. It was the catalyst. It truly was the catalyst in my life, right? That unlocked all kinds of possibilities for me. Well, even if it weren't art or a sport, I'm in the business world. And what do they say? 50% of people who quit their jobs did so to get away from a toxic culture, from a, yes. from a horrible boss, yes. meaning they didn't feel like they belonged there. So people are engaged only with their time, meaning they show up for work for one thing and one thing only, and that is to receive a paycheck. But they're not engaged with their with their hearts, with their passion, with their hope, with their creativity. All of these things that you're talking about right now, all centered around a ball, which we're going to get into because I want you. I have more questions that I want to ask you before you get into the the meaning or the description of different balls in different countries and different communities. But I heard you say that you you found a way to rise above your circumstances and to not let your circumstances dictate your destiny and your motivation. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I think it's, it would be easy and no one would have ever thought that I was lacking any motivation if I just surrendered to my circumstances, right? That woe is me. Look at what we come from. Look how rough this is. Oh, well, you know what? I'm just going to throw my hands up and this is the way it's going to be. And if I had actually listened to the social workers who came and checked on us with my grandparents, right, who basically wrote us off and they told my grandparents, don't expect much. Look what they come from. And I overheard that sitting at the top of the stairs because I you always really did. Yeah. And I heard them say that. And I said, oh, I'll show you. I'll show you. Yeah. I'm going to prove you wrong. And I decided not to be a victim. I chose to be a fighter. And I think that decision and hearing someone basically write me off, that really was the motivation, right, for me to be an overachiever in many ways, but to prove people wrong, that circumstances don't have to dictate your destiny, that you can rise above suffering and circumstances. And you can find, you know, a way to be more than that situation you're in. When you overheard that conversation, how old were you? Oh, well, they started coming to the house when we were, you know, I was six. So I probably within that first year. Where, and where do you think that came from? Is Was that grace? How did that get planted in you? 
I honestly think that there is some kind of DNA trait or whatever, because I didn't see or witness that in anyone at that point yet. Right. And so I just think there, yeah, I love that you use the word grace. I think grit and grace kind of a thing, maybe, right. That I have a little bit, maybe I was, I was a little ornery too as a kid. So, right. So, uh, so I think maybe you got a little bit of those things in me, but I just think that I was, you know, bestowed, blessed, whatever way you want to look at it with a little bit of that in me. And I'm uniquely different than my brother's in that way too, because both my brothers, you know, thought that, oh, well, this is the way it is. And so we had very different childhoods, all three of us, because we weren't very close because we just made our own choices because my grandparents, like they said, you're going to have to basically raise yourselves. And I think I mentioned it in the book that, you know, my grandmother unexpectedly passes away when I'm 10. Right. And so now my grandfather's trying to raise, you know, three boys on his own. So we really were fending for ourselves and navigating the world on our own. And so, yeah, so I know that I got that in me through some genetic trait or something. And then it just got nurtured and developed over time. But yeah, I think grit and grace and and a little bit of that orneriness, right, that I'll show you kind of attitude really comes from just um, from maybe a lineage, my Nana Carol and others and stuff. And so, yeah, I think that's where it all came from. Just out of curiosity, does that playground still exist? Is it still Yes, there? it does. Yes, really? it does. Every time I go home, I don't get to go home as often as possible. But last year I got to go home. I always swing by there. Kids don't play out there like we did back in the day, but that playground's still there. And you know, what's wonderful is I'll talk to someone or, you know, after an event or something, and they might be from Philly and they ask me and they go, oh my gosh, I know that playground. Like I know it. So I've actually bumped into several people who know the playground and have walked by it or driven by it. And so it's really uh, remarkable, you know, how special that place is. So I always swing by there when I go back to Philly, always. So Kevin, you give descriptions of different balls in different countries and communities and then I know one of your favorite topics is about sport for social change. And again, along this, this topic of the power of belonging, I think all of those things just kind of come together in your message. Can you expand on that? So as I started to understand my opportunity to travel and to meet other kindred spirits, as we mentioned already, around the idea of a ball changing the world, and that a ball could save a life. I just knew that there were other people out there that were believers and understood the power of sport. And so I just started, similar to you, I started seeking them out and finding them on social media and looking them up and reaching out to people. And I started getting embedded into the sport for social change movement and the power of sport movement and people who believe that a ball could save the world. And I would actually go to events, but also when my friends would travel or I would travel, I would just bring a ball with me. And if it was a specific country I was going to, I would bring the ball that I knew that was their like country sport, right? Like, so, you know, some countries it's rugby, some countries it's cricket, some countries it's soccer, some countries it's basketball, right? Baseball, football, whatever it might be. I'd bring that or give that to my friends and say, Hey, if you happen to be going through a city or a community and you see kids playing in the street with a beat up, torn up ball, gift them this 
But if you could ask them, could you get the ball they're playing with? And my friends actually looked at me like, why? I said, because that ball could tell a story. That ball has a story attached to it because especially if it's been beat up and worn out. And so I started collecting, you know, these play artifacts from all over the world. And I had a ball collection. I actually donated it to Aspen Institute that numbered almost 150 from all over the world. It actually became a traveling art exhibit. And so I started to understand this notion. We all speak ball when doesn't matter where you go in the world. It's its own language. It is a recognizable, iconic thing that everyone understands a ball. And so you can go anywhere in the world and stand outside with that ball, that round object, and people know, and people will walk up to you curious and they'll do the universal gesture of putting their hands out, right? Or pointing to their feet, like throw the ball to me, put the ball to my feet, kick it to me, and then it's game on. And I just love the fact that we have play as a universal connector. We all have play histories. How magical and amazing is that? That no matter where I've traveled in the world, when no matter if it's in war-torn areas, impoverished areas, troubled areas, you bring a ball, there will be play. People understand what that is. And so that's what I think is magical about, you know, we all speak ball and the play artifacts, the ball collection that I have from around the world. So when I turn to a page, it's almost like halfway through your book, there are a bunch of Oh, the images, yep. yep. Is that the collection that you're talking about? Yeah, that that's the ball collection. Yeah, that's the ball collection. It's yeah. incredible. It's incredible. Oh, it's, and they're stunning when they're stunning in just how clever and creative we are to create a ball out of whatever we have. But we're going to find a way to play, regardless of our circumstances or situation. Play is hardwired in us. And I've been pointing out something. We used play during a recent troubling and challenging time the pandemic. Think about it. How many people had um, gardening? We started gardening. How many people had the puzzle table? How many people started knitting? How many people started working out again? How many people just went on walks, right? How many people had appointment viewing of TV shows, binge watching? Think about it. What were we doing though? We were actually tapping into something hardwired in us to navigate a difficult or ambiguity we were tapping into play. We were tapping into play. We weren't necessarily giving it its due, but that's how we were really dealing with a difficult time. It was a coping mechanism. Right. Isn't that beautiful when you think about that? Yeah. That we all have play hardwired in us and we were using it during a really difficult time. We were navigating all the uncertainty and ambiguity of the pandemic through something that we all have innately in us, play. So when, when you get hired by corporations, big companies, for-profit companies, and I know that you do, that have nothing to do with the sports world, are they asking you very specific ideas, uh, systems that they could implement to, to introduce more play into their work environment? Because you know, I, I make jokes about it that in some companies, if you're laughing or having fun at work, what does that mean? You're not working. Back to work. No fun around here. And yet we know that study after study proves when a team of people are laughing and having fun with each other, creativity goes up, 
sales go up, profits go up, absenteeism diminishes. And yet some companies, well, we're not the type of, we sell insurance. And so you really can't have fun here. We're, we're a dentist office, so you really can't have fun here. And I know that you believe that that's not true. And then, and then they think, well, to make it fun, we have to put in a, let's <laughs> put in a beanbag chair in the employee lounge and, and that's what it takes. You know, we'll put in a, a ping pong table in yeah. the parking lot and that's all of our, our people need to help them become more creative. And you know that it's not that. That is not it, right? But it's so funny that you paint those pictures because I've seen those, right, in environments when we were, you know, going to places or I've been invited to go and speak. And the diversity of companies that bring me in, they do ask me to talk about play and fun and why play matters and why play is serious business. And I identify the research, I identify the science, I talk about, you know, the importance and role and value of it in culture, right? And culture is what people show up for each day in a workplace. They come to join a culture, to be a part of a robust, vibrant place, right? That's welcoming and inclusive. And I feel like I belong. And so there's a wonderful book called Wonderland by Stephen Johnson. And he's got this great quote and it hooks onto something that you pointed out. You'll find the future wherever people are having the most fun. He actually did research on breakthrough innovation in the 20th century and identified a common thread. The people who came up with the idea, the aha moment, the unexpected, were actually not in an office, a conference room, or a cubicle, right? They were actually out enjoying each other and having fun. Wow. And so I think that by itself and all the other research things that are out there about culture, high-performing teams, the role and value of finding time for fun with purpose, being very purposeful about it, not just frivolous, beanbag, ping pong table, right? Um, you know, foosball table. No, it's way deeper than that. I have to create an environment where you feel like you have permission and you feel safe to actually express yourself beyond your job title, job function, and job description. Oh my gosh, I'm and writing I'm, it down. Permission and you have to feel safe. Feel safe, right? Especially adults, right? Kids will naturally play, but adults, they feel like there's going to be judgment, right? Oh, you better be working. You Oh, you got time for fun? Then you're not working hard enough, right? And so I need to see my leaders playing first. And once I see that, then I know I have permission and it's safe. But before that, I'm not going to be the tall nail. I'm not going to put myself out there, right? And so I think buying the foosball you know, table or the ping pong table or the beanbag chairs, people walk by those, right? And they're just dust collectors. Nobody's touching those things until permission and safety is created by the leaders. And they consistently do it. It's not just a one-off moment. And I think that's one of the key things, right? It really is so important to create that environment where you feel safe and you have permission. Then you'll fly your freak flag. You'll be out there, man. You'll be having fun, right? And little do you know, I can orchestrate moments. I can design play to have a specific outcome that we want. Hey, we want to communicate better. Hey, we want more collaboration. Hey, we want to be better problem solvers. I can actually design moments to help you do that. You know, that was actually going to be my next question. What role does the boss play in all of this? Because I, I used to facilitate this team building type seminar 
called Shot in the Arm. And it was basically interactive and it was playful. And But I would get hired by these bosses, like you need to come in and fix my people and teach mm-hmm. them how to have fun with each other. And then they would stand on the sidelines yep. in their suits with their arm. I'm like, you know, unless you leave the room now uh, or take off your suit and jump in and, and participate and play right along with them, you're just wasting your money with me today because nobody's going to learn or gain a thing from this. That's so true. And I think more so they need to see them participating and be the first in line. They need to be the first in line, the first to be willing to do it. It's not enough to be what they would used to call the parents that would stand on the sidelines, the coat rack, right? They'd just be holding the coats while the kids are playing, right? (laughs) Right? Right. Right? And then that's kid time and the parents are scrolling and looking at stuff and not engaging. And so do what I say, not what I do. But no, hey, I'm going to join in the fun and play because it's actually helping me too. There's value for me as well as you. And when they start to see leaders lean into the opportunity and understand that, but once again, it has to feel safe. It has to be a judgment-free zone. That's the key piece. Because if you're going to take this and we're playing and then you're going to use it against me later, people will not want to join in. Oh my gosh, such good advice. Such good advice. But if a leader's in there and the leader's willing to be vulnerable, when vulnerable in front of their people, oh my gosh, what do people say? You're real. You're not just your job title, your job function, your description, your position in the or chart. Oh my gosh, you're a real person. I want to rally behind you. I want to win with you. I want to support you. That's the difference. But we've got to get leaders who are more mindful and aware and willing to be vulnerable. We need them to be the Velveteen Rabbit. Do you remember the Velveteen Rabbit book? Yeah. Right? I need to be handled and loved, right? And and falling apart, right? Because I make myself available. That's the leaders we need now. We need leaders who are willing to be velveteen. We need, need leaders who are willing to be vulnerable. I'm just that's the key. This, I'm loving this validation. I think before you and I actually started recording, I said to you, I said, Kevin, if you want to make me the brunt of any of your jokes about the fact that you're all about the ball and playing sports, and I never played sports, you know, make me the the brunt of the joke. And I I, I said that because when I I've seen that when I put myself out there and I make myself vulnerable the brunt of the joke, so to speak, where I'm okay to be silly in front of them, that all of a sudden incredible things come out of that. Uh, I have some of my schools that that hold what they call Dance Club Fridays. So every Friday at two o'clock or whatever the time is, they all run out there and they crank the music and they all mm-hmm. do this line dance type thing. Mm-hmm. And the owners and the directors in those schools saying, we're the first ones out there. We, we know that we're not good dancers. We look stupid and silly doing this, but if we're not the first ones out there, nobody else has permission. Nobody else feels safe jumping in and being included in that. Facts. Honestly, it's the truth. And that's where you raise your game or not as a leader. Show me that you're really a leader, right? Leaders lead in unusual and unexpected ways. It just doesn't fall into your job function and your job description, right? And now even more so, Right, because you're really competing for talent attraction and retention and development. Right. It's a talent war out there. Right. right? And people have options and people are opting out and they don't want to be around some stank energy. No, they're trying to be around some good energy. And so they'll yes, 
especially when that's not <laughs> maybe the the product that you're selling. Some yes, let's, let's face it, some products aren't sexy. No, they're you know, not. So to be able to attract somebody to what you might be considered a boring product or a boring manufacturer or a boring company that's been around for two hundred years, how do you attract talent to something like that? Culture, 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 culture right? Right, culture, energy, leaders, right? Just the, the environment that you come to every day, right? And so, how are you being transformational, not transactional with people? All those things, it doesn't matter the product, it's about the people. It's always going to be about the people and the environment that you create for them and your willingness to create and engaging. Right? Let's go back to right, our ability to engage because we're competing for your attention. Right. It doesn't matter the business sector or product. We're still competing for your attention. And if you're coming in and you're this automaton just going through the motions, that's not what we want. And yes, everybody doesn't get to have a role like you or I, right, where you're, you love your work you do, your work is your play. But guess what? That work, that job that you have could be unlocking the thing that you really are passionate about outside of work. So it's creating opportunity for you to do the other thing that you want. Why would you begrudge that position, that role, that job? You won't. You'll honor it and value it. And so I just, yeah. So Rev Kev comes out every once in a while. I should have warned you when, right? So Rev Kev will get on his bully pulpit here and kind of like raise my voice and stuff on behalf of this. Because it really does. I've, I've seen too many places that... Gosh, you're so close if you would just be willing to put yourself out there a little bit more with intention and passion and purpose, man, you could unlock all kinds of things with your team. Yeah, and I hear that from people. Well, when I watch you, you you walk into the building, you hug everybody. I'm not the hugging type. I'm not good at showing that side of myself. And my response is, well, build a bridge and get over it. Yeah. You're, you're so good at so many other skill sets and you're brilliant in, in this and in that, which is obviously what helped you build your business or build your career, helped you climb that corporate ladder. Well, why don't you start focusing on, on this stuff too? Why not adopt this and, and, and become brilliant at this? And, and I, I want to ask you about um, you know, community and collaboration, but before we get too far down that path, can you just give our listeners a visual idea to describe some of these balls actual balls that you have uh, collected and what they're made of that have come from some of these communities? Yeah. So the ball collection or play artifacts as I've looked at them, right? Because once I got into the the museum world, right, where it was on, you know, the the exhibit world, right? That's what they uh, affectionately called them, these play artifacts. And so, I mean, I have one that was made out of trash bags, from Africa. I have another one made out of banana fibers from a tree from Uganda. I had one that was pieces of paper with notes written on them from students from um, the foster club. They were all children that were in the foster care system and they wrote their dream on them and they made a ball and gifted that to me. And the very last one on there was um, someone to meet my dad. Right. And so, I mean, I've got so many amazing, oh, I've got a trash bag ball made out of tire rubber where they actually peeled tire rubber really thin off of an old beat up tire and made string out of that to keep the trash bags together. Um, one that's made out of wicker where they play like a barefoot tennis um, game 
um, in Indonesia, there is one that actually, um, I'm just kind of looking at some of the, cause I have like a set with the pictures. Oh, one that's a water balloon ball from Mexico, right? Where they tear water balloons and make balloon ball out of that. And so, yeah, I mean, it's the variety and, and the creativity and the innovative spirit behind them will blow your mind. But I go back to the fact that we're all hardwired to do it. We'll all find a way to do it. And especially when we're dealing with challenging and troubling situations, we'll actually find time for fun because it helps us navigate ambiguity and uncertainty and upheaval. It does. And I'll go back to the pandemic and everyone has a play story. I promise you, everybody does. So when people are not engaged, what can happen is that bosses, companies just want to fire people for not being engaged. But you can't fire your way into building a better team of people. No, you can't. And you know what also will happen is people will leave your company because you're not creating an environment that's engaging. And that's the other thing, right? That's the other thing that happens. Talk about collaboration because I love collaboration. There's that old small-minded thinking that if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. And that's just the worst advice we ever received. Because collaboration, where you know how to bring out the best in the people around you, that's when you're going to soar. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And I think, you know, collaboration stems from, you know, my love of being on a team. And, you know, we're always greater with the sum of all of us, right, than the intellect of only one. And I think that's one of the key things for everyone to recognize is that we're all contributing in some way to the goal that we're going after. And when everyone starts to understand what it is they bring to the team, right, they bring to the effort, and that's clear to you, the gift and talent that you have. And so we have to nurture that. We have to celebrate that. We have to point that out. And so when you look at, you know, people, I always like to ask, you know, do you remember the teacher the first time a teacher said to you, you were good at something and people always go, oh my gosh, that was my, this teacher, that teacher. And they said, I was good with, I was good at art. I was good at math. I was good at science. I was good at running. I was good at this. I was good at drawing. I said, okay, now let's look at what you do now for a living. And they'll say, oh, you know what? I do this, but you know, on my off time, I still paint. Or I actually ended up getting into architecture because someone said I was really good at solving problems when I was a kid. Or someone actually pointed out that I was really good with math and I do accounting. Or someone pointed out X, Y, or Z. And so I just think that you know the more that we start to understand our teams have to be, the individuals are part of a team, have to be aware of their gift and talent that they bring to the team. And I always actually do this exercise with people when I said, if you could rename yourself and drop your job title, your job function, what would your title be? And people, oh, I'm the this, I'm the positive deviant, I'm the naysayer, I'm the intellect. I'm, okay, bring that energy to this effort. Wow. Bring that gift and talent to this effort. Now you're collaborating with what you know you bring to bear to this that can help advance the idea, the hope, the dream. And that's very different than, oh, well, my job title and my job function is this, so I need to be quiet and stay in my lane because I can't add value to that. I'm not allowed. Wow. So collaboration is about dropping those things that can actually get in the way 
of someone actually fully being present and fully showing up as their full, as we've been hearing over and over, authentic self, not just narrow based off of a job description and job title. Wow. So Kevin, talk to me as though I'm that new generation, maybe I'm in my early 20s entering the, the workforce, trying to navigate myself through life. Gosh, I, I got to make a living. I got to pay the bills. Or maybe it's more than that. I am an entrepreneur. I have that spirit. I'm not sure where that's going to take me, but I, I've got that, that drive in me. So talk to me as, as though I'm that person. What's the best advice that you would have for me? Well, if we want to just boil it down, no dream is microwavable. It's not going to happen overnight. There's no instant success. So are you willing to stack little wins each and every day and keep building towards that hope, that dream, that aspiration, that goal? And don't think that any of those things you're seeing on social media, those individuals that you follow and that you admire, that they rolled out of bed one day and it just happened. See, the thing that we're not showing is the lonely work, as I point out, right? That unglamorous work, that work that no one tells you to do, but you just trust and believe that that hard work will never go unrewarded. I'm going to put the work in. Just put the work in and trust and believe because it may unlock something you never anticipated. Like my journey, come on, Win. Like there's no way that I thought a ball was going to create all that it's created for me. But I had something that got me out of bed every morning. You got to have that because otherwise you will sit in bed and scroll on your phone and dream dreams of what it is and you're not taking any action. So I think it's really important whether you're someone who's just starting your career and you're going to be in quote unquote more traditional kind of role working within an organization or an entrepreneur, right, that is dreaming big dreams and hopes of creating something that's lasting and having great impact that you have to, you have to recognize that you got to put in the work, hmm. put in the work and get better each day, grade yourself at the end of each day. Did I do something, one thing today, before you lay your head down, did I do one thing today to get closer to manifesting that hope, that dream, that goal that I have? Okay, then check. All right. And I'm going to lay my head down and I get to see the light of day the next day. I'm just going to re-up again. I'm going to lean into it again, right? I'm going to recommit again each day. And then you look back at this work that you've done over, over all this time and stacking these little wins and you're not surprised. Maybe other people are surprised like, oh my gosh, how'd you do that? It's like, how'd I do that? I've been putting the work in. I've been stacking it, right? <laughs> I'm not, this is no overnight sensation. What, what did some people, entertainers will say when, all right, yeah, I'm a 15 year overnight sensation. Right. I've been at this. I've been putting the work in. So trust and believe that hard work never goes unrewarded. And as my grandfather would say, don't talk about it, be about it. There's lots of talkers and very few doers. Which one are you? I'm not 20 something brand new entrepreneur, but I just got so much out of that. You know, that I love what you said that no dream is microwavable. Is that even a word? If not, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I, I well, like to make up I words. Wrote it down, I wrote it down. <laughs> no, because I, I've heard it said that people call this generation, this brand new generation, the microwave generation. They want things instantly. Yes. They want the and, results without the work. And we know that it does take the work. And the work that you said, you described it so well. It's the, it's the little wins. 
So for me, it's a little win that I got up at four o'clock in the morning. It's a little win that I didn't turn on the TV. Instead, I turned on music. For me, it's a little win that I didn't look at my phone or, or email or social media until a couple of hours after I got up. It's a little win that I made it to the gym. And it's, I stack up all those little wins throughout every single day consistently. And before I know it, I've accomplished so much. But if I didn't do those little wins, I'm not going to have the big result, the big win at the end of the day. You won't. And you, that, what you're talking about is a level of discipline and a level of trust and faith that this is going to work out, maybe in a different way than I ever anticipated, but it's going to work out. And I'm going to put the work in. I'm willing to do that, and I'm willing to trust and believe that. And I think that's the key is stacking that and putting in that effort and you know having the discipline to get up at four in the morning, right? to be where your feet are. To start your day with something that gives you joy, music, to recognize that for the first few hours, I'm not looking at social media, a discipline. Oh, to go to the the gym and get movement and get my physiology going, right? Because you know that movement gets your energy going, right? And so you're, you're investing in yourself and your energy, right? And then you're doing, you know, your family time and all those things. So all that that you're doing, and then you're going to do the work, those little stacking, right? 1% better each day. That's how you win. That's how you find, like, ta-da, look what just happened, everyone, right? (laughs) Like, it didn't happen overnight. It wasn't this microwavable thing. But for whatever reason, social media wants to celebrate that and not tell the stories of all the work because that's not sexy. That's not glamorous. But it's actually what really is the cheat code, the unlock. That's how you get there. And that's something that transcends time, right? And generations, it's just always been about who's willing to put the work in. Wow. Kevin, can you believe we've already been talking for well more than an hour? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and we haven't even talked about your your career within the 76ers organization. (laughs) We didn't talk about your career at Nike. We didn't talk about, about any of this stuff. And I don't think that, well, hopefully I get to do a version two and a version three of interviewing you. Because we, we had no idea that this, this was going to be a short series, right? You got a limited series. We're going to do a limited series, oh, right? I hope so. I really do because I knew it was going to be this good. And, and watching you on stage as a storyteller because there's people who just quote principles and doctrines that they read from a hundred different books. And I don't know. I have a hard time relating to that. But when somebody tells a story, hey, when I was six years old, I got put on a bus with my two brothers and and I was told by this person and, and this person became my mentor and this person implanted this seed in me. I mean, that's what I relate to. And I know that, that thousands and thousands of people are relating to that story as well. So thank you for that. But Kevin, to, to wrap things up, do you have a final message for our listeners? You know, I um, mentioned the idea of stacking little wins and grit and grace and gratitude and be where your feet are. But there's this wonderful quote from Albert Einstein that's also a part of my daily mantra and ritual. I have no special talents. I'm only passionately curious. And I start every single day with a level of curiosity and wonder and discovery that each day will unlock something new for me. And so I'm passionately curious about things, right? And adventures and 
moments. And I think that allows me to tap into all the wonders and availability of, of possibilities each and every day. And that goes back to being where my feet are. So stay present and stay focused and stay curious and bring a level of grit, grace and gratitude every day. And I think that's going to do everybody well when I think it will. I agree. And I, I, I just beg people to, to follow Kevin, just research his, his Ted talks, check out his books, Follow him on social media. You're, you're not going to be sorry. You're going to be all sending me lots and lots of love and gratitude uh, because I turned you on to this great guy. And I love being a connector. I love, love connecting people like you, Kevin, to this platform that I've spent the last you know, 40 years creating because I, I take that very seriously, that I have this responsibility and this accountability to as part of my brand to deliver good good news and conversations that absolutely matter to the people that I have influence over so thanks Kevin for being a big part of that today my honor and pleasure i love that you use you know bring in the good news i mean we need people that are doing that so thank you for doing what you're doing win well kevin this was perfect absolutely perfect and i'm going to continue to stalk you so be ready <laughs> It's all love. It's all love. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. Absolutely. <laughs>